morning. As you just discovered, we will be in Acts chapter 14 this morning, verses 8 through 18. We're also going to access our message from last week briefly because there's a very strong and interesting connection between last week's message and this week's message, so bear with me on that. We have, um, we're still in the, in the first missionary journey of Paul. He, is, uh, he has been sent with Barnabas to go and preach the gospel. And he started out in chapter 14 in Iconium, and remember the passage from last week. Uh, many believed, uh, many repented, and yet there was a group of people who was creating a ruckus and rising up some persecution against them, and so they moved on and went on to where we find ourselves now in Lystra. Lystra is a different place from the previous location in Iconium. It's radically different, whereas before, we're going to discover in Iconium, as we saw last week, that there are many who believe. In Lystra, it seems there's how many that believe? Just in the initial reading that Tom just did. In, no, in, the, in today's passage, how many people believe, do you see? One. Just one. You notice that? Verse 1 again, now in, I'm sorry, verse 8 now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. So the, you get the idea in verse 8, the emphatic nature of, of Luke's description. This guy is not just a little injured, is he? He's not just a, in a little bit of a bad way. He was in a really, really bad way. We don't know how old he was, but there's this man who is sitting because he cannot do anything but sit. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, but you get the idea if you read the context and if you know a little bit of, of ancient Near East history that these type of people, that is, this, like this guy that's crippled, where he would typically sit every day would be at the, one of the entrance ways into the city. It's the most common place to sit. Excuse me one second. <coughs> It's one of the most common places to sit. And the reason why is because that's where people would pass all the time. And the reason why it's valuable for him to sit there as a crippled person is because as a crippled person, he can't do much. And so his only hope is that people will be merciful to him and will share some of their belongings, some of their money with him so they could live another day. He was a beggar. Almost inevitably, a crippled person in that day would be a beggar. Almost inevitably, every day, they would be found around the city gates. Now, this one is especially important that he's sitting by the city gates because later on in the text, you discover that right by the city gate, um, verse 13, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, which means that the temple of Zeus was where? At the city gate, right? So, it is at the city gate where this guy is seated and he is looking for alms, donations, that he could use to live another day. Right by that city gate is the temple of Zeus. It's the central place of worship in this town. It is the, and the worship of Zeus would have been one of the most central of all of the Greek, Grecian gods to worship. And so, there's the temple. It's at that location that Paul shows up with Barnabas and he does what? 
He preaches. Do you see that? It says in verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking, which means Paul shows up at this town, Lystra, and where does he go? He goes to the devil's den, doesn't he? He's outside the temple of Zeus. Their central worship system, Paul, Mr. Shy, Mr. I don't want to create waves, Mr. I don't want to cause any problems. You recognize the sarcasm, right? He shows up right at the city gate, right outside the, the temple of Zeus. Yes. And he does what? He begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now it just says here in the text, he was speaking. I suspect he was not talking about politics. I suspect he was not talking about current events. I suspect he was not talking about investment strategies. I don't think he was there talking about what his plans were for his next vacation. I'm not saying any of, those, any of those conversations are necessarily bad conversations. But the point I'm trying to make is he's there doing what Paul does. Is that correct? He, and we know it's the case. Because it's in the midst of whatever Paul is talking about that he recognizes something about the crippled guy, doesn't he? I suspect if he's talking about politics, he could not recognize it. Does that make sense? But it says that he's speaking, he's proclaiming boldly, the idea is, he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I just said, as it were, in the lion's den, so to speak. This is like, a very risky thing to do. This crippled guy is there. The crippled guy, according to verse 9, is listening to Paul speaking. Now, we don't have any other data other than that he's listening. Right? That's all it says. Correct? I'm going to assume a few things at this point in time. And I think it's legitimate to assume and the reason why it's legitimate to assume is because of the flow of the text. It says he listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well. That's what verse 9 says. Now it could very well be that Paul is being able to look at him supernaturally and, and look into his heart. I guess that's possible. Right? Possible. But it doesn't say that. But it does say he's looking at him intently. Now, if it's at the city gates, there's a lot of people there. I suspect there's probably a lot of crippled people there as well. They didn't exactly have modern medicine. By today's standards. And as Paul is proclaiming the gospel, he recognizes something different about this crippled guy. There's something different about him. There's something that is evidently different about him. And the only thing we have actually stated is what? He's listening. But I expect that the listening here is not what you and I think listening as. We think listening is basically, yeah, I hear your words. I suspect listening here means something radically different. As Paul is preaching the gospel, he notices this crippled guy. 
And this crippled guy he recognizes is listening to him. I suspect, again, this is just my suppositions, I suspect that as Paul looks at him, he observes this guy listening very differently from anybody else. I suspect there's a lot of people hearing him. Of course there would be. They're at the city gate. There's people flowing in and out of the city. There's people going up and down on, uh, into the temple and back out again. People are hearing him. But he sees something radically different. By the way, I, also, I would also argue that people are listening to him uh, in other cases as well here because the moment that he's healed, everybody responds, right? Which means everybody needs to be dialed in anyway. Because there's a big crowd. Also, a guy gets up that was lame. How many people do you think would recognize it if they, didn't, if they weren't all focused on the same thing? You think many people would recognize it? Probably not. But if everybody's listening to what this guy is saying, and then this guy who's saying something says in a loud voice, get up and walk, and the guy gets up and walks, everybody there at the city gate is going to what? See it. They're going to recognize it, won't they? And that's exactly what happens. So you've got a boatload of people that are listening to Paul. But there's one person who's listening in a very, very different way. Again, I'm just taking shots in the dark here. I suspect, as Paul looks over at this crippled guy that's sitting, probably leaning up against the city gate, I suspect you're, he's looking at him and he's seeing something different about him. What is he seeing? I expect that you're, he's seeing him go like this a little bit. As Paul says and starts talking about how much of a sinner people are and how much they have hated God, he's probably like this. And as he's talking about that there's only one Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and He came and He lived and He died and He rose again for your sins, I'll bet you, you saw, he saw this guy shaking his head. And when he talked about how much you need, need Jesus to redeem you and you need to repent and believe. Because that's, that's Paul's message, isn't it? Isn't it? That's, every time it's Paul's message. You need to repent and believe. I expect that this, this, this guy, this crippled guy, I expect Paul looks over and probably sees what? Tears running down his face. I'll bet he looks over at this crippled guy and he maybe even hears him repenting of his sins. Is that outlandish to think? I don't think it's outlandish at all. He looks over this crippled guy and he doesn't just see a crippled body or a broken body. He looks over at this crippled guy and he sees a broken heart. And his broken heart is evident. It's absolutely evident. This, this man is broken and grieving not over his crippledness. He's grieving over his sinfulness. Thank you for your confession this morning because that ties directly in. He's broken over his sinfulness. And he's listening intently and absorbing what Paul has to say. And so it says in verse 9 that Paul looks intently at him. And in your text, Jim, correct me, tell me if the King James is different, but it says, 
and seeing that he had faith to be made well. Does your say faith to be made well as well? Faith to be made well. Any, to be healed. Anybody have anything different? Can I just say this to you? That the idea of faith to be made well or faith to be healed is not separate from faith to be saved. He could not have faith to be healed without faith to be saved. You either have faith, I would argue the Scriptures teach, you either have faith or you don't. You either have faith or you don't. When he says here, he, has, he sees that he has the faith to be made well. It's based upon he has the faith to what? Believe Jesus. To repent and believe. Any other faith is not legitimate. This is not, I'm healing him even though he has lost as the day is long. He has true faith, in other words. And so seeing that he had faith, and again, I would argue that what Paul is seeing is the evidence of it in, in this guy's life. It is interesting, if you go back to the Gospels, what do you find with the unbelieving people? They're crying out for more signs, right? Isn't that what you see? More signs, more miracles, right? Do you see any record in here of this guy crying out to be healed? No. He's not crying out to be healed, is he? It doesn't say that. It just says Paul observes that he has faith. Is that what you see? So I would argue what we're talking about here is not a guy that just says, I think this guy can heal me. We have here a gentleman who in his broken state has turned to Jesus and has faith, period, in Jesus. So verse 10, Paul then speaks. He says in a loud voice, and of course loud because a lot of people there, in a loud voice, and obviously he wants everybody to see it, right? And hear the process. He says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And the implication of it is he did it immediately upon being told to do it. He springs up to his feet. And I love the picture of springing up, right? He sprang up. This is not a struggle and claw and work your way up stone by stone until he's upright, is it? This sounds like somebody jumping up ready to run a marathon. <laughs> he's up. He springs up and begins walking. Verse 11, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying something in Lyconian. Just so you're aware, the, the, the language that Paul would have been speaking would have been Greek. The language of Lystra was Greek. Most likely, this language being referenced, called Lyconian, was probably a, an old archaic language that was still being spoken in the temple of Zeus. It was probably a religious language. Okay? It would have been a language that Paul would not have known. And they're saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
So Barnabas, verse 12, they call Zeus, and, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Up to this point in time, I want you to understand the picture. The picture is the people are saying this. This guy's up and walking, right? And all the people in a different language begin to speak and call these people by these Grecian God names, but in a different language that Paul can't know. And so that's why you see initially Paul and Barnabas are standing there like, you can almost get the picture. Paul and Barnabas are standing there going, what? what's going on? Yeah, what's happening? What's this all about? They're probably looking at each other like, what's going on? Maybe their initial thoughts were, they're speaking in tongues. <laughs> Who knows? But they're look, they're, I, can, I can picture them looking at each other like, what in the world is going on? But then verse 13, And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the, uh, a sacrifice with the crowd. The idea is, most likely the priest from the temple of Zeus was there in the crowd and saw the whole thing, was listening to Paul, and saw the whole thing happening, and immediately he rushes into the temple. He gathers the, the oxen and the garland together and comes rushing back out again. You can imagine it probably would take 10, 20, 30 minutes for that process to take place. And during that whole time, Paul and Barnabas are standing there going, what's going on? And the guy who's healed is out walking around among everybody. Right? He's all thrilled about what's happened. Paul and Barnabas are confused. And then all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas, you can picture it, look over, and here comes the, the priest from the temple Zeus down into the group with, with cattle, with garland draped over them, and says... Let's sacrifice to these two gods. And when that came out, Paul began to connect the dots, obviously, immediately. And then we get Paul's message to a pagan people. Verse 14, But when the, apostle, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out of the crowd crying out. The first thing we see in, cha in chapter 14, verse 14, is we see Paul and Barnabas immediately upon realizing they missed the message. Right? Immediately upon realizing they missed the message, Paul and Barnabas' first response, I would present to you, is the exact same message in action that the formerly crippled man had. The formerly crippled man would have been grieving, wouldn't he have? If he was repenting and believing? What do we find here? Paul and Barnabas immediately tear their clothes. They are grieving, strongly, evidently, loudly, grieving, tearing their clothes, which in the ancient Near East was very common. The very first evidence of grieving was ripping your clothes. And it's referring to your outer garments. Tearing your outer gar garments either off or almost off. And then Paul and Barnabas immediately rush out into the crowd. And in their rushing out into the crowd, they're hollering out the top of their lungs. And you know what they're hollering? You missed the whole point! You're wrong! We talked about this before, haven't we? About the 
the, the directness and bluntness of the message. You're wrong. You missed the point. Men, why are you doing these things? There's no reason for this. And then he goes on, verse 15, we also are men of like nature with you. And by the way, that statement by Paul right there would have to fold in the Gospel message that was just preached. He's not merely talking about them being mere mortals. Because he just preached the message about what? About sin, didn't he? About separation from God. About judgment. About the need to repent and believe. And so when he says, we also are men of like nature with you, he's saying, we are absolutely not worthy of being worshipped because we are evil, sinful people just like you. And then he goes on, we bring you good news. And the implication of the state we bring you good news is we bring you good news that's not of us. Right? It's not of us. It's not good news. Hey, we're here, everybody! Quite to the contrary. We're sinners just like you. We bring you good news that you should turn from and talk about blunt Direct message. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Does that what's another word for the phrase I just read? Repentance. That's what he he just described repentance. In all of its understanding, he said, first, everything that you have embraced and are demonstrating yourself to embrace currently, which is what? Sacrificing the false gods, right? Giving yourself over to false gods. He just described them as what? Vain things. Vain things means worthless things. Empty things. Elsewhere, Paul would call them things that are categorized by the term dung. Philippians chapter 3. He says, I've got good news for you. We bring you good news. We just talked about it. Let me clarify it. What you're doing is vain. You need to repent of these vain things. They do nothing for you but only serve to condemn you further. And you need to, to do what? To turn to a living God. In other words, what did he just say? When he said, turn from these vain things to a living God, what did he just say about all the rest of the gods? They're dead. Now, can I just ask you a quick question? Is that an offensive message? Is that an offensive message? You bet it's an offensive message, but what did he call it? Good news. He called it good news. The good news is there is a living God. Those aren't them. We're not them, and those aren't them. That's vain. That's empty. That's useless. That'll do nothing for you but condemn you. But there is a living God. 
By the way, can I just say this? If you wonder what a gospel presentation looked like in biblical times, <laughs> hello. <laughs> There's another one, isn't there? It's pretty clear. And then he goes on and talks about the living God, doesn't he? Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So whatever's in the earth and the implication on the earth, the sea and in the sea, everything that was created, this God that I am declaring to you is the God that is what? Yeah, He's the Creator, but more importantly, the implication of it is He's all-powerful. And many other things too, by the way. Verse 16, in past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And the reason why, of course, is because his primary focus was where in the old, old days? Old generations. The Jews and the Jewish nation, right? His primary focus was on the Jewish nations. So in the old days, he led all the nations, all the other nations, to do what? Walk in their own ways. And the only exception to, to that list is, generally speaking, those who were on Israel's land, right? Those he did not let walk in their own ways, did he? No, but the, the other alternative was what? Death. They were all wiped out, weren't they? Outside of that, generally speaking, uh, at one point the Assyrians get wiped out. But generally speaking, overall what happened is he let the nations walk in their own ways. You want to worship those gods, you go right ahead and worship those gods. Knock yourself out. You're all condemned anyway. Verse 17, Yet he did not leave them without witness, for he did good things by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your, heart, your hearts with food and gladness. Now, on what basis does Paul declare that He gave them these good things. This is really important. On what basis? Because they worship other, other gods that do all these things. Correct? They had hundreds of gods. And all these other gods did the same. They, they, they said, these other gods, we have a god of rain, a god of sun, a god of, of uh, fer, uh, fertility. You, well, you probably have several gods of fertility. And all sorts of other things. God of war, God of peace. All these different gods that they worship. What does Paul do? He says, no! God revealed Himself to you. He's talking about the general revelation, isn't He? He revealed Himself to you based upon what? Two things. Number one, He's living, right? In the text, He's living. And number two, What? He's cre his creation. He's the Creator. If He's the Creator, that means He has sole authority over everything He's created. Correct? He's living and He's sole authority over all His creation. The only way someone's going to believe that is how? If God's Spirit is working in Him. Right? Does that make sense? So we have this person, the crippled man, whose God's Spirit is doing what? He's working in him, isn't he? Then you have everybody else who are rushing around trying to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, correct? Verse 18, even though Paul and Barnabas are, are frantically preaching the Gospel, are they not? 
They're frantically preaching the Gospel and trying to get these people to stop sacrificing to them. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Or to put it in different words, they barely stop them from sacrificing to them. You know what that means? Go all the way back to the beginning of the message this morning. It means there was only one believer in the group. If they're trying to sacrifice to them, what does it say about them? It says about what they worship, isn't it? It says who they worship. They'd already decided that, that these two people are Hermes and Zeus. So is it, if I believe in Hermes and Zeus, would it be appropriate to worship to them or sacrifice to them? Of course. If I believe in Zeus and Hermes, and I believe this is Zeus and Hermes come in the flesh, it's very appropriate to sacrifice to them. That means that they're still worshiping Hermes and Zeus. That's, their wor- that's who they're worshiping. Even though Paul and Barnabas have clearly declared, clearly declared, there's only one living God, have clearly declared that He is the Creator of all things, have clearly declared that He's demonstrated His goodness, by causing it to rain and all the rest of those things. He's been merciful to them. Or as Tom, you said, His goodness has been on display. Right? It's an interesting text, but it gets its value in the contrast with last week's text. We're going to see this week's text connects with next week's text as well. But if you remember, in last week's text... Paul and Barnabas preached, and verse 1, a great number of both Jews and Greeks, what? Believed, which means, by the way, they repented and believed, correct? Now, there's no Jewish temple in, in this new, new city. But a, a number, a great number, it says, of both Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 2, unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of His grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But, verse 4, the people of the city were divided. There's no division in 8-18, through is there? If there's any division at all, it's one versus everybody else. The city was divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. While an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. When you think about 14, 1-7, as well as the previous text in chapter 13, you saw people repenting and believing, glorifying God, being willing to suffer persecution. Isn't that what you saw? being willing to, to receive rejection, and you found them enthralled, enthralled with asking Paul more and more. Teach us more. Isn't that, what he, isn't that what they kept saying to him? Teach us more. We want to learn more. We want to know more 
more of Jesus. We want to know more of the Scriptures. We want to know more of the salvation. And Paul and Barnabas said what? Continue in the grace of God. And continued to teach them, didn't he? Right? And that's what you saw in 13. That's what you see in the believers of 14, 1-7. Isn't that what you see? It's there as well. But in 8-18, in, in in what do we discover? People are still really religious, aren't they? Yes! That's exactly what you see in 8-18. through 18. You see a form of godliness. They're enthralled with Paul. They're enthralled with his message, right? In some, at some level. They, but they misunderstand it, don't they? They don't get it. They think they get it, don't they? You don't see in 8-18, to 18, you don't see a group of people going, I just don't understand what he's talking about. This doesn't make any sense. That's not what you see, is it? You see a group of people who are saying, yes! <laughs> These two are amazing! And you find the people following these two people, don't you? And they're even hearing what they want to hear. And they're hearing what they expect to hear. So even though Paul and, and, and Barnabas are telling them what they're telling them that we see late in this section, they're still wanting to do what? They still want to worship them. They still want to sacrifice. He restrains them so that they scarcely don't. Right? This is what the word says. But they're all caught up in these two. And they're very quickly becoming followers of these two without understanding the truth of the message. Now that's going to go south real fast, isn't it? In fact, we're going to see it next week. My point is that what we have in 13 and 14, 1 through 7 in contrast to 14, 8 through 18 is the contrast between true, I would argue, true Christianity and as Tom, you said, a form of godliness. It's pretty stunning to see. They think they are understanding what Paul and Barnabas are trying to communicate, but they don't. They're enthralled with these two people. They're caught up with these two people and what they think their message is, but it is not. And we're going to discover pretty quickly next week that eventually they're going to say, oh, that's their message, and everything's going to go south. Did that happen in the New Testament church? By the way, this isn't a church, obviously, but did that happen in the New Testament church? Yes. All you've got to do is read 2 Timothy. That's exactly what happens. Paul says to Timothy, what, in the last days, what's going to happen? Yeah, they get that nine-verse uh, laundry list in chapter 3 where they're going to be part of the church because that, that passage is about the church. About the church. They're going to be just like the people at Lystra. If they hear the message, they're going to think, yes, but they're not going to understand the message. And they're going to be followers of people because they think the people are what? Are helping them, but real quickly they're going to say, ah, and then they're going to do what? They're going to gather together people that do what? Tickle, eat itching ears, 2 Timothy 4. 
And the ramifications of it are dramatic. Early on, for example, the church in Asia is all about Paul, isn't he? Aren't they? The church in Asia is absolutely enthralled with Paul. They love Paul. Paul's their guy. But all of a sudden it was like, oh, that's what you're saying? That's what you're saying? And so what happens? Paul says the entire church in Asia has left me. Happened with Jesus too, didn't it? Did, was everybody enthralled with Jesus at first? Oh my goodness! They were all about Jesus. And all of a sudden he said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can't be part of the kingdom of God. And they were like, nope, we're out of here. Did that happen? And lo and behold, a few days later, crucify him. And that happens? You know, I think it happens too often in a lot of churches. This is exactly why a lot of pastors will start to alter the message. Because people are like, oh, what a great, great pastor. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait a second. <laughs> is that what he's really saying? And when they start to feel the pressure, what do they do? When they start to feel the kickback, what do they do? They begin to alter the message. And then they begin to alter the message a little bit more. And a little bit more. No pastor gets up one day, the day before he was preaching the true gospel, and the next day they get up and they say, just for sake of example, oh, transgenderism, no big deal. You think that happens overnight? I mean, down the road from me, there's a Lutheran church. And they've been flying the, 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 the um, rainbow flag now for probably a year and a half. I don't think that perspective started with Luther. What do you think? Do you think, I mean, it's a Lutheran church. you think Luther was like, the gay lifestyle is perfectly fine. Can you picture Luther saying any Tom smirking, he's thinking something here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think so. That's my point. What happened? Could I use this term? It's a slow ooze. It's just a really slow ooze where at one point in time there was a man, Luther, who was preaching justification by grace through faith alone and preaching strongly against sin. I'm just using that as an illustration. But slowly but surely, as pressure came, there were little tweaks to the message. A little tweak here and a little tweak there and a little tweak somewhere else and a little tweak somewhere else and 500 years later, What's happened? Well, relatively quickly, the gospel no longer was being preached. Isn't that right? It's exactly what it is. The gospel of accommodation. What I love about the story we have here today is, and especially when we combine it with next week's, is when they, when they didn't get it, when the pagans in the town 
and the temple uh, priest doesn't get it and only one person gets it, what does Paul do? If I may, if I may quote Luther, what Paul is saying, Paul and Barnabas are in effect is saying, they're saying, here I can stand, I, do, I can do no other. They're saying, no, this is it. And last message, last week, said the same thing, didn't they? This is the message. You don't like it? This is the message. This is the truth. You hate it and you're going to run away? Here's the message. Isn't that what Paul says last week? You're going to drive me out? Here's the message. This week, they don't get it. They wait in the midst and they say, no, let me clarify, not by changing it, but by making it as abundantly clear as possible, this is the truth. And what's going to happen next week is there's going to be an uprising. And too often in the church, we end up saying the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Can I just submit to you, if the truth has been revealed, the juice is worth the squeeze. I was talking to somebody yesterday. I was on a run yesterday um, with a girl from High Point. And I, I, we got into this theological discussion. And I told her, I said, here's my perspective. Here's my perspective. <clears throat> Simply summed up, when God screams something, I'd better scream something. When God speaks loudly about a subject, I'd best speak loudly about the same subject. When God speaks quietly about a subject, I'd better speak quietly about a subject. And when God's quiet about a subject, completely quiet, I'd best shut up. If I don't do that, if I screw that up, I will always inevitably give away the gospel. I will sell the gospel down the river every single time. And the, the question I must never ask myself with regard to the truth revealed in the Scriptures is this. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Because it always is. It always is. And the true church, those that are truly redeemed friends, they will be people like the crippled guy. And other crippled guys we've seen in the Scriptures who, who Jesus heals, right? They will be, they will be like Paul was as a result of being on the road to Damascus. They will be like Barnabas and the other apostles. The true church will not look like the church in Asia. It won't. It just won't. And the challenge to you and I is to ask ourselves, when I read these texts, 13, 14, all the way through 18, and then going on to 19 and following, who am I? How, or better put, how is the gospel affecting my life? Is the result of hearing the gospel for me, is the re result of hearing and receiving the gospel for me, is it a response in repentance and believing, turning from vain things 
to a living God? Or is it something else turning to something else vain? Because if I could just say this, I think there's altogether too many people who claim to be believers that are merely turning to vain things. We may swap vain things, but we're turning to vain things. We're not turning to a living God. We may repent of our vain things we have at the moment, but it ends up being turning from a vain thing to some other vain thing. It doesn't end up being a vain thing that I turn from and to the living God. And the evidence that I'm turning to a living God is the evidence that I respond to what God says. In repentance, grieving, rejoicing, proclaiming, worshiping, and being captivated, captivated by someone who is absolutely not vain. And I think too often we end up being more like the church in Asia if we're not careful. In the church of Philadelphia in, in, in Revelation chapter 2. So I guess our challenge of the text is simply to ask ourselves, what is our perspective on the gospel? And be very careful because it's very easy to answer that saying, well, I think the gospel is important. <laughs> It's valuable. It's good. To say that misses the point. It demands that we examine our lives and ask ourselves, is our lives defined in a growing way by the gospel? Is it defined by and controlled by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it not? And according to the response to that would be perhaps we need to once again and probably the word perhaps needs to be removed we know we need to re- once again do what turn from vain things right and turn to a living God and even that is the mercy and goodness of God is it not amen let's pray Lord help us it is easy it is altogether too easy to think we understand the message of your word when the evidence in our lives demonstrate that we're just like these people in Iconia, in Lystra, I'm sorry. We're just like them. We think we hear, but we do not hear. We think we understand, but we do not understand. We desperately need your spirit to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Help us, each one of us, to be people like this crippled man. Now, we may not be crippled physically, but Lord, we are left to our own devices very, very crippled spiritually, and we desperately need your gospel. Even as believers today, we need to repent and believe. Transform our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen.